Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Today's guest has said, quote, every object has the potential to tell many stories. Whether we make, collect, customize, or consume an object, it becomes invested with meanings through association and usage. So the question becomes, do we make things or do our things make us? End quote. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. And it's a really fitting question coming from someone who has forged a three-decade-long career dedicated to exploring the storytelling capabilities of clothing. Today, we're joined by artist, designer, and master storyteller, Dr. Christine Chakinska, who is the Senior Curator, Africa and Diaspora, Textiles and Fashion at London's Victorian Albert Museum, and the first person to ever hold that title, cast. It was apparently inaugurated just in 2020. Yeah, in April, I actually very distinctively remember when Christine was appointed to this position because she was interviewed by Vanessa Friedman for her article on the incredible whiteness of the museum fashion collection for the New York Times. And that article addressed the hierarchies and inequalities inherent in fashion museum collections um, that really centered Euro-American fashions by white designers almost exclusively. And I just, I remember being so excited to read about Christine's appointment and this new position at the V&A because it really represented a commitment by the museum to make meaningful change in their institution by collecting and celebrating fashions from Africa and the African diaspora. This commitment is, of course, encapsulated by the museum's landmark exhibition, Africa Fashion, which we are here to talk about today. On view until April 16th of 2023, the exhibition is the largest of its kind in the UK and the first of its kind in the museum's 170-year history. As the exhibition's lead curator, Christine, drew upon her years of experience, she wove together an incredibly vibrant and rich textual and visual narrative that centers a range of African voices and perspectives. And while the exhibition is certainly not a survey of all 54 countries that make up the continent, it is this incredible celebration of the vitality and innovation of fashion creatives from over 20 countries. And while the exhibition, of course, recognizes the diversity that exists between these designers and the continent's thriving fashion scene, the exhibit also reveals the myriad of threads that transcend these geographical boundaries to interweave and connect the designers to one another and to those pioneering creatives who laid the foundations for their success. And we are so pleased to welcome Christine to the show to learn more about this wonderful exhibition. Christine, welcome to Dressed. Christine, welcome to Dressed. It is such a pleasure to have you here. I'm so excited to talk to you today. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, and of course, we're here to talk about your groundbreaking exhibition, Africa Fashion. But first, I want to just learn a little bit about you. Um, For instance, I'd love to learn about your formative relationship with fashion and clothing. Do you have an earliest memory of dress you would like to share with us? Well, that's a lovely question, because I think my love of fashion really came from my parents. 
So both of my parents were very snappy dressers. <laughs> and I have very early memories of being taken across the road to the local dressmaker um, to have unique pieces made that my mum would design. You know, she'd sketch out what she wanted and she would choose the fabric. So in fact, my sister and I um, and my parents were known for having very individual pieces made by the local dressmaker in our case. And my dad would have suits made by a tailor. So I feel I've grown up in a household of people that appreciate fashion and understand the joy, I guess, of the one-off and the joy of being able to express yourself through clothes. Yeah, I was going to say, it's one thing to buy it off the rack, which I did growing up, but it's um, another entirely to maybe be part of that design process and then to wear something that you know is one of a kind. Absolutely. And so my early memories of being taken across the road to the dressmaker and having to stand really still. And I must have been quite young because I remember moving too much and being sort of stuck with the odd pin every now and again, you know, <laughs> too much. And also when I was growing up, sort of in the 60s, I guess this would have been the earliest memories, 60s and 70s, it was that era of mother and child dressing, which I, I think is probably no longer in existence. But typically the mum would wear the mum's version of an outfit and then the child, in my case, the daughter would have the mini version. So there are a few sort of mother and child outfits that were designed by mum and made by the local dressmaker. And so I think it was quite natural for me when I came to teenage years to start making my own clothes. And so growing up in that sort of 70s and 80s period, it's the period of, well, punk actually, but I was never confident enough to become a punk. So I became an, a new romantic instead and started <laughs> making my own, <laughs> making my own frilly shirts and, you know, pirate looks or whatever it was that was in at the time. But I also started to get into, I have a real love, and I could have kept this, I guess, a real love of those kind of 1950s films, you know, with Sophia Loren, for example. So my look as um, a new romantic was quite tailored and quite into that kind of 50s glamour, you know, Maria Callas and Sophia Loren, Gina Lola Brigida, that kind of look that I was seeing on screen. So I had a sense of a particular elegance, you know, Jackie Onassis, a particular elegance, and probably quite classic looks, We looking back. But that became um, part of my aesthetic vocabulary when I first started making clothes. And so it was natural to then um, do a degree in fashion and textile design. So I studied for my first degree in what was Bristol Polytechnic, um, near where I grew up. Um, and emerged with a fashion and textile, printed textile degree, and then started working in industry after that, working for a number of different brands, but became, particularly in my late 20s, early 30s, became known for an English, you know, as an English look designer, really. This was when I worked at a senior level. I was principal designer at Laura Ashley, for example, when I was 30. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. And I still have some of my frilly shirts. There's a theme here, you know, <laughs> a romantic to frilly shirted Victoriana for Laura Ashley. So that, that was a joy actually working for them. Super creative. So yes, you have the framework or the boundary of the in English look, but as a creative person, it wasn't about following what was on the catwalk. It was more rooted in archival research um, and understanding those Victorian details and how those could be repurposed for a contemporary woman. So it was a super creative role, which I loved. So 
So I did that on the one hand. I also worked as a senior designer for Margaret Howell. So almost the opposite, but still the English look. So Margaret Howell's look is much sort of cooler and it's very tailored and it's quite minimalist in a sense. Um, and so I did that for a few years at a senior level. So I really enjoyed my time working as a designer and exploring my place within this industry, my place as a designer of the English look. And I guess in a sense, that's really where that those questions started to bubble up. And I, I remember um, a co-worker whilst I was at Laura Ashley said to me, it's so great that you're head of design. I mean, I was principal designer was the title, but my co-worker said, it's so great that you're head of design because you're not exactly an English rose. Wow. I know. Well, I mean, she meant it as a compliment, but, you know, it rattled me. I thought, well, what does any of that mean? I don't really understand what that means. Um, And so that kind of stayed with me. Um, And I think it's memories of that kind of comment that then made me um, go back to studying. I did this part-time, but eventually I did my PhD, which was looking at notions of Jamaicanness and Englishness in fashion and dress, but specifically for men. So my PhD, inspired by my father, I guess, but jumped off from the Windrush generation, looking at these fabulously dressed men and and trying to understand why they looked the way they did, you know, what were their influences and why did dad always want to wear English wool? Why did he have these bespoke suits made, you know? And so that's really my journey um, into this combination of fashion design, research, academia, and then visual arts. So my, when I did my MA, rather than creating a collection, I created an installation piece because uh, there were so many questions that I was exploring that I didn't feel designing a collection would allow me to examine and express more you know, deeply enough. And so I created an installation. And in a way, that's my entry or that was my entry into the world of archives curating and I can absolutely track back much of the work that I do now at the VNA to that sort of period of my life where I was exploring some of these these issues around Englishness and Jamaicanness but doing it through textiles through fashion through everyday objects images you know photography featured in that early work and storytelling so there's always been an oral histories aspect to my work. And I, I almost see myself sometimes as a kind of storyteller. Sometimes I do it through words. Sometimes it's through the voice. Sometimes it's through objects. And I love learning your background because I think it really speaks to how you've curated this exhibition. You bring kind of this unique lens to it, not just as a curator, but also someone who's explored fashion from kind of a 360 view, right? You're a designer, you're a maker. So I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I mean, congratulations on this exhibition. I, of course, have not traveled to London to see it in person, but I've seen a lot of pictures. I've read the catalog. I mean, what an incredible feat, first of all. Thank you so much. I mean, it's been a joy to work on. It really has. 
And Africa, of course, is a continent. It's comprised of 54 countries. It's inhabited by 1.3 billion people. And of course, this, this exhibition is obviously in no way meant to be comprehensive, but you've done this incredible job demonstrating Africa's fashion diversity um, while also highlighting the threads that connect these designers to their histories, cultures, and to one another. Can you introduce us to this wonderful and groundbreaking exhibition, Africa Fashion? So Africa Fashion, the whole project, whether that's the exhibition, the book or the events, it aims to consciously celebrate a fashion scene and fashion history that's as diverse and varied as the continent itself, as you say, with the 54 countries. So we knew from the beginning that a few things, actually. So we knew from the beginning we couldn't cover everything, that we would only be able to, to give our audiences a glimpse of the glamour and the politics of the fashion scene and its history. Also, I was very aware in beginning to lead the team, I was very aware that many of the stories that are told about Africa, the continent, in whichever context, still tended to fall back on Africa as a place of lack. And so I knew that I wanted to tell the opposite. I wanted to shine a light on the continent and its abundance, its unbounded creativity, it is this place that reinvents itself. It's this place, this continent that has a vitality to it. And so that became the starting point. Also the sense of agency. So on the back of much of my work up until this point, it has been to explore um, issues like invisibility. And so knowing that this had to be about agency and visibility, it seemed to me that the starting point should be the independence era. So the exhibition is split across two floors in the South Kensington galleries. The ground floor is given over to the historical period. So it's the 1950s through to the mid 1990s to coincide with the end of the apartheid era. This period of independence spurned or spawned a cultural renaissance across the continent and across the arts whether that's fashion, music, literature, photography, if you think about those wonderful um, photographers like Sanle Sore, who's in the exhibition, James Barner, the studio photographers, Malitz the Dube, they're all coming to the fore in this mid 20th century moment. And so it's a moment of pride in, visible pride, I should say, in being black, is visible pride in being African. The world is looking at the continent. 1960 becomes known as the year of Africa because over 17 countries gain their independence from the former colonial rulers. So it became so important to start to ground the exhibition in that era. Going into the exhibition, you experience the sense of the cultural renaissance through beautiful footage um, shot at the time by William Greaves at the 1966 Dakar Festival, the first festival of black arts. And so the world descends on Dakar and it's Africa, the continent's opportunity to show itself as culturally savvy, which it always was, always has been, culturally savvy, cosmopolitan, which it always has been. People have always traveled throughout the con continent and overseas, but also it's able to show itself as modern, you know? And so that's what the Dakar Festival and that footage 
does for us. It places everyone in that mid-20th century moment. In terms of fashion and textiles, this is the point in history, the fashion history on the continent, where the industry becomes professionalized. So you get the hero name designers like Sade Thomas Farm in Nigeria, or you get Chris Seydoux coming out of Mali and working in Paris for a while and then going back to Mali. So it's a moment of um, creativity, a groundswelling creativity, but a revalorization of traditional textiles, which we look at in the exhibition, but also the professionalization of the fashion industry. So the ground floor, that historical floor of the exhibition is given over to those sections, the cultural renaissance, textiles, the revalorization of traditional textile crafts, Kente from Ghana, Adare from Nigeria, Kanga from Tanzania. So all of that becomes worn in a, with a new sense of pride. And strategically, this wearing of these traditional textiles becomes a political act in the moment of independence. It's also the era of made in Africa. So print cloth, for example, is no longer only made overseas in Manchester in the UK, for example, or in Holland, it becomes produced on the continent in that moment, that 1950s to 1990s era of independence. We showcase the work of five designers that came to the fore internationally in that mid 20th century moment. Sade Thomas Farm, Naima Bennis, Kofi Ansa, Chris Seydoux. And you know, it's a really wonderful moment to show a whole case devoted to each of these designers. And it's the first time that their work's been seen en masse in a museum setting. It's, it's like bringing them back together, but also putting them back into fashion history, global fashion history as a whole, which is the key thing. And then we move into the photographic section. And I think Yes, we have James Barner's fabulous colour photography. We have Sanle Sore's photograph of the man boarding the flight, the imaginary flight to, to somewhere exotic and exciting. But for me, one of the most poetic moments within that photographic section in the historical floor are the family portraits. So we went out to our audiences about a year before we opened, inviting them to share photographs, fabrics, fashions of this independence era. So we have photographs representing 10 family groups, a mixture of Nigerian heritage and Ghanaian heritage, because these were the, the families that answered the call out. We did do an international call, and it just so happened that the majority of people that responded were UK-based and largely of Ghanaian or Nigerian heritage. But you get to read their stories of fashioning themselves in that moment of independence, what the garments meant to them why it was important to wear that particular dashiki or to wear that particular gele or to have that afro in this era of independence. It's lovely to be able to bring those stories to life in that section. So that's really the historical floor. And then in our galleries, you go upstairs to the mezzanine, which opens out into this wonderful kind of circular mezzanine that references the idea of collaboration and collective power and pan-Africanism which is at the heart of the exhibition. So within the show, we are referencing works by over 45 designers across the two floors and 22 countries. And in speaking to the designers, there was this common sort of sense of Pan-Africanism, this sense of 
wanting unity in spite of difference. And that's replicated in the circular design of the show. So upstairs in this circle, we present aesthetics essentially that came from the conversations with the designers themselves. So we move from the minimalist group. So people like Muso Maxwell based in Cape Town, rethinking power dressing for women through really restricted use of color, through drapes, through asymmetric cutting to give really sharp minimalist look. And we then we move into the polar opposite. So the mixology group. So these are the designers like Lisa Bolueu, who's known for mixing multiple patterns in an outfit for embellishing them. And this was a, one of the joys actually through lockdown, because we curated this through lockdown. And when Lisa Bolueu's works arrived in the museum, we could not believe how stunning they were in terms of their beading. So she's known for embellishing print cloth. Yes, she mixes different patterns, but she'll also embellish them with beads or she'll cut into them. And we'd had conversations with her about her work. We'd researched her work. We knew what her work was like, but nothing prepared us for, you know, opening a box and pulling out a garment that was just eye-poppingly gorgeous because of the work. Yeah, I mean, I can see it in the exhibition catalogue, but I can only imagine what they're like actually to see it in person. Absolutely. In person, absolutely exquisite. And so that's the mixology group. Then we move into artisanal. So showing the mark of the hand, whether that's couture in the work of Iman Aisi, or it's someone like Lagos Space Spoke Program, who really looks at Adore, but repurposes that traditional hand dyeing technique and includes graffiti patterns, for example, or includes the uncut raffia. He leaves them into his work. So Adore, there are different forms of Adore, and it's tie and dye or resist dyeing. And there's one form of Adore that you you tie raffia around with stones. But what's beautiful about the Lagos space program shawl that's in the exhibition is that the raffia is left in. So you get this wonderful scrunched up uh, with little tassels of raffia shawl that's just so beautiful, really showing the mark of the hand. And then from that, we're moving to co-creation. Co-creation, so modern day made to order, which is still a vibrant part of the fashion scene on the continent and in diaspora. But the largest section upstairs in terms of the ensembles is given over to the Afrotopia section. And, and this is narrative fashion is the way that we might define it. And the designers in this section, they range from people like Tebe Magugu to Orange Culture um, to Christy Brown. So the designers in this section, they use their practice to explore pressing issues of the day, whether it's LGBTQ plus rights in the work of Rich Manisi, who uses the pride colours in his signature zebra print. Or it's, as I say, Christy Brown from her She is King collection, looking at women's empowerment. I love that title, She is King. It really sort of sums up her look, I think. And so that was really interesting to work with the designers there. So Orange Culture, looking at um, or critiquing masculine or toxic masculinity through his work, using organza, for example. So these are the, the group that really use their research-based collections to critique and to comment. So you spiral around the circle and then you come into the center of the circle. There's a small photographic section that looks at contemporary photographers like Guled Ahmed, and they're pondering on self-identity, through self-portraits taken in their bedroom in Addis Ababa. And they're these wonderfully rich portraits using different trinkets and found objects to create different looks and to explore 
their identity. Bang in the centre of the circle upstairs is Global Africa, and this really looks at the digital world and the way that digital platforms are often the way in which we in the Global North first encounter the African fashion scene. So we're looking at the power of digital platforms to connect, um, and there's a sense of cultural exchange that can take place. Often we encounter African fashions through film or through music. So we have the fabulous Tokyo James outfit worn by Burner Boy at the Grammy Awards. So it's, it's a real delight to be able to, that's getting a lot of attention. It's really exquisite. And <laughs> Rorex Jacquard three-piece that's just really, you know, takes up space. It's absolutely wonderful. So that's there to kind of pinpoint that idea of us encountering fashion through the digital world. And so the upstairs is really quite buzzy. So we start off in a slightly contemplative mode, thinking about independence. Then we have the buzz of the contemporary scene. We spiral around. And as we leave the exhibition, there's a more we return to a kind of contemplative moment with the work of Ibrahim Kamara, who, of course, many people will know from him being the creative director of Dazed or taking over from Virgil Abloh at Off-White. And what was beautiful for us about this collaboration and this commission was that when we spoke to Ibrahim Kamara about our aims for the show and our hopes for it, he was really taken aback by the work of Chris Seydu, who was a designer that came to the fore in the mid to late 20th century, based in Mali initially, growing up in Mali, then moving to Paris and having Paris years, a kind of contemporary of Yves Saint Laurent when he was in Paris designing evening wear because he wanted to showcase the elegance of African women. But also he's more known, I guess, for his work with Bogolan Finney or Mudcloth. And Ibrahim was really struck by the story of Chris Seydu, who sadly died really young. But his work has a real, a really kind of timeless quality. Thinking back to my designer's eye, my designer's life, this kind of bicolour, mud cloth look that's become signature a signature to a particular style or a particular level of taste he was the first person to use Bogolan Finney on a catwalk to tailor it to adapt it to simplify the pattern so it could be used for couture and so he's important in that that respect so we end on this reflective note with this wonderful series of photographs taken by Ibrahim Kamara himself of vintage Chris Seydu from model Liddy Ullman's wardrobe, which came in through the call out. Black and white photographs taken with that kind of classic Irving Penn fashion photography look with the wonderful marbled background. Grace, a contemporary model, Ibrahim Kamara's muse, wearing clothes that were designed and worn by Chris Seydu's muse. And so it's a wonderfully reflective moment where it marks a moment of transition for us as a museum, consciously and properly and rightly celebrating African creativity across the board. Transition for him in that he's now behind the camera taking these shots. It's also a moment of transition for everyone in the show because we absolutely wanted to use the VNA as a platform and almost pass the mic to the people in the show, the creators in the show. So you really, you get to read their own words about their collections. You get to understand or have a glimpse of their practices from their perspective. And I almost feel that all exhibitions are teamwork, but I feel that the people in our show 
a part of the Africa fashion team because of the collaborative way that myself and the core curatorial team worked, you know, very hand in glove, hand in hand with the creatives in the show. You know, and I think the whole thing is kind of wrapped by the fabulous film commission that we um, orchestrated with Lucky Logan Banwo, who is based in Nigeria and came to London to shoot the footage that is streamed on the apses. So the, the shape of the gallery is circular, but it's also domed. It has a domed ceiling. So you literally walk the exhibition and you're wrapped, you're swathed in contemporary African fashions. And it's just a, a real kind of experience. And that's what we wanted to be, to give people a taste, if you like, um, a glimpse of the glamour and politics of the scene that is always re reinventing itself, that refuses to be defined, refuses to be pinned down. And for me, that's the, the joy and the excitement of African fashions. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that beautiful, I mean, I was trying to envision it as you walked us through each section. And you can, of course, go to the V&A website if, dress listeners, you can't make it to the exhibition. It's open till April. They do have really good exhibition photographs that walk you through each section as well. So you can listen to this interview while you're walking through it online, if not in person. And then, of course, you have the beautiful exhibition catalog. I would love if we could go back and talk in a little bit more detail about some of your sections specifically starting with your essay in the exhibition catalog in which you talk about the long story of Africa fashion. Mm. Can you talk to us a little bit more? Because I think a lot of what you're saying with the designers is this DNA that kind of runs through these different cultures and these connecting threads that are a reflection of a much longer and richer cultural history that extends back thousands and thousands of years. Yes, it was really important um, to all of us working on the project to to absolutely state right up front that the African fashion scene and African fashions are centuries old, as well as being diverse and varied. Because I think particularly with recent spotlighting of the African fashion scene, often in the global north, it's almost forgotten or it's not realised that the history of fashion goes back for centuries. Similarly, I think the cosmopolitan nature of the continent goes back for centuries. People have always travelled, whether it's internally across the continent or externally overseas. So there's always been newness. There's always been cultural exchange. It felt very important to map that in the show, pinpoint it in the show, but also to write about it in the catalogue and to acknowledge that draped fashions are still draped fashions. So, for example, in the, the exhibition, you'll see fabrics that often in museum settings are just hung on a wall. It felt very important to us to have them draped and wrapped and work with key people on the continent to wrap them in a way that would, would have been relevant, for example, in the 60s. Because I think all too often African cultures across the board are seen as somehow outside of fashion, outside of modernism. And we wanted to put them back in because they have always had a fashion system or multiple fashion systems on the continent. And so in the um, essay in the book, the long story, I think it, it's entitled, of African fashions, this is really what I track. So referencing things like archaeological finds um, that have taken place where you can see styles in dress, styles in jewellery. I'm trying to really pinpoint those archaeological finds, but set them in the context of travelling cultures, because that feels very important to dispel that myth of 
African cultures being static or singular or unchanging and therefore easy to set outside of fashion. It was important to talk about the geography, the travel, alongside the finds that suggest different ways of dressing or fashioning the body historically. Absolutely. And I think you did a really beautiful job of doing that. And I think something you spoke to a little bit earlier is it's clear that you made really made a conscious effort not to focus on the violence of colonialism, right? This is instead you're centering different African groups and making it a celebration of textile traditions and dress practices and expressions of self-fashioning that have existed for thousands of years. And like I said, there's kind of that continuing thread that comes into the present day. You talked about fashion and and the power of embodied self-expression in the post-independence years. And at one point in an essay, you wrote, quote, how could a continent rebuild upon such profound damage? And you write about anger refashioned into acts of creativity. In the post-liberation era, what people put on their bodies, fabric or fashion, could be a highly political statement. And that's something that you explore in your section, The Politics and Poetics of Cloth. Can you talk a little bit more about that and maybe highlight a few examples from that section for us? It's interesting because um, what I want to preface this with is saying that sometimes fabrics are just designed for purely for decorative reasons. So not everything has an as a political attachment to it. But I think that these long-held textile traditions, whether it's Bogoland Finney, the mud cloth, the bicolor mud cloth that I mentioned, the symbols within Bogoland Finney had meaning. There is this um, sense in which fabrics are not not only fabrics, they've always been used or often been used to tell stories. And then that tradition is then taken up commemorative cloth, for example, comes out of that tradition. So commemorative cloth in the exhibition, the Nelson Mandela cloth, the ANC cloth, with the um, the photographic print of Nelson Mandela um, on a medallion within it and the ANC colours is quite typical of a genre called commemorative cloth. And it still exists today. It's screen printed now. It wasn't always screen printed. But, you know, for example, one of the things that I acquired in the museum when I joined the museum was a Kamala Harris print cloth, commemorative cloth. So it's it's used to commemorate important moments politically or personally. So you'll see that sometimes at funerals, for example, you might see a, a commemorative cloth that carries the face of the person that's just deceased and it will be worn at a funeral. So it's there to sort of carry a message or to commemorate a moment. So that's commemorative cloth. Within print cloth, again, you have a similar situation where certain symbols mean or certain designs mean certain things and they they change over time. So within the exhibition, we have the ABC cloth. We have a turn of the century ABC cloth from our archives that's presented just as a small cutting and that's from the turn of the last century, sorry. So we have that um, ABC cloth there, sort of a 1900s version of it. Then we also have the the mid-1960s version of the ABC fabric, which has changed in design, but it's still the ABC print cloth. The ABC print cloth is thought to have meant um, a valuing or symbolise a valuing of education. And that's something that the wearer wanted to portray. But, you know, the design of it changes over time. 
similarly kente we have some wonderful kente in the exhibition um, again certain patterns carry meaning certain patterns are just there because there's a wonderful combination of colors and geometric patterning so not everything always carries a meaning some designers and makers simply want to create something beautiful um, and that's fine and I think that that's part of what the exhibition is grappling with shaking up people's expectations where I think often we're wedded to everything having this deeper meaning but then there are people that simply want to put the yellow with the green and then the red or put that particular stripe next to something else and that's fine too so those are just some examples there is a kind of a kind of an awareness there's still an awareness of the power or the importance of beauty in the everyday I would describe it as that hasn't left global Africa in the way that perhaps it's 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 left certain European or Euro-American cultures I think there's still for many of us not all of us but for many of us there is still this kind of understanding and appreciation of beauty in everyday the understanding and appreciation of aesthetics and therefore the power of fashion. The other thing that's in the exhibition, which was lovely, that came in through the call out, it's a wonderful um, Kente ensemble, unknown to us from Gladys Ashante and her family. And she bought this particular length of Kente before coming to the UK, knowing that she was expecting her first child, knowing that she was moving to form a new life. And so the pattern that she chose speaks about that ambition that ambition and hope for wealth and well-being in the future. So yes, that, that tradition exists in many different forms across the continent. But as I say, I really want to stress that not everything has a particular meaning behind it. Sometimes it's just the, the joy of putting things together. You've also demonstrated so, so beautifully too that, again, as you've emphasized multiple times, clothing as a storytelling device and as an entry point to learning more about these different experiences and the way that people have self-fashioned historically and into today. Thank you, Christine. Dress listeners, we have so much more to talk about with Christine. Today, we have only really been introduced to the exhibition, so you will just have to join us on Thursday when we continue to explore the exhibition's themes in more depth. And of course, don't stop at this podcast. As mentioned, there is a fabulous website dedicated to this exhibition that has numerous opportunities for you to engage with the beauty, the artistry, the dynamism of African fashion, including a section called Cloth of a Continent, where you can discover more about African cloth types featured in the V&A's collections. And we will, of course, provide a link to the website in our show notes. And of course, you have until April 16th of 2023 to see the exhibition in person at the Victoria and Albert Museum. And if you can't make it in person, you should absolutely try to get your hands on the beautifully illustrated and written exhibition catalog by the same name, Africa Fashion. That does it for us today, dress listeners. Until part two of our conversation on Thursday, may you consider the vibrancy, the vitality, and the artistry of Africa Fashion next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you always, so please email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you'll find images and reels to accompany each week's episode. And if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. And as always, special thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. 
More Dressed coming your way on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.